So hey everybody, this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines during National Movement Building Show. I'm in studio with Channing Martinez, co-host and the producer. And we have a great show today. How about We Will Shoot Back, Armed Resistance in the Mississippi Freedom Movement. What's that? It's a book by an important academic and organizer named Akinyele Omoja. We're going to be talking with him. In, an, in a conversation I had with him at the Strategy and Soul Movement Center a couple of weeks ago, initiated by Dr. Robin Kelly, and we're going to talk all about that in a minute. The second thing we're looking for is, in the second part of the show, is we're going to talk to our listeners about becoming Voices from the Frontlines action organizers. We really need your help. We need your help to build more listenership for this show, to be participants when we say, let's all get out and do something. And the simplest thing you can do to start with as an action organizer is get yourself on the, the Voices from the Frontlines mailing list, action list, by going on the site, voicesfromthefrontlines.com, and you'll see a register. Now, I'm going to read these names twice because we're very impressed. We want to thank Ricky Herrera, Marilyn Flowers, Jess Graffel, Mark Menardine, Stefan Gier, Tracy Green, Max Binder, Anthony Rainey, Robert Taylor, and Pascio Sarkin, who all signed up in the last two weeks. So yes, when we came back from the show, Channing Martinez and I were so happy that we got about seven people who did what we asked them to do. So if you could, during this show... Go onto the computer or go onto your phone. Go to Kate, go to VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. Go onto the terrific site that also has all the back shows that you can download at your convenience. Register, and you'll be getting the weekly update. You'll also be getting a Friday second email that will have a link to the show in case you missed it or in case you want to hear it more conveniently. Okay, you got that? So now we're going to go to the first part of the show and discuss basically a discourse on black nationalism and the black united front. Because the 12 minutes of the transcript that Channing and I worked on of the recording are so dense, and because I saw a revolution in my own eyes and most of you did not, I'm going to have to do some background stories so you know what you're listening to, and then also some interpretation at the end to help you at least understand what the conversation was about, okay? So the first thing is, who is Akinele Umoja? Well, he's a brother who wrote this important book called We Will Shoot Back, 
arm resistance in the Mississippi Freedom Movement. He spent most of his childhood in Compton, California. He received his BA in Afro-American Studies from California State University. And while a candidate at Emory under Dr. Robin Kelly, his dissertation was what became uh, We Will Shoot Back. Umoja has been active in the liberation struggle of African people, particularly working with the new African independence movement, the Muhammad Ahmad, that is to say, Max Stanford Defense Committee, the African People's Party, the House of Umoja. Akinyele is a founding member of the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, which you should know about today. It's called MXGM, and the New African People's Organization. He's a professor of African-American studies at Georgia State University. So the first thing is, it would take five shows to just unravel all the groups I mentioned. Right. And for you to know this one related to this one, had a split with this one. But here's the most important thing that is a consistent theme in my life, in Channing's life now, and on this show. We believe in the black revolutionary nationalist tradition as the central driving force inside the United States and the third world, of which blacks, Latinos, indigenous are also members, as the driving force in the world. So these groups, some of them were very small, some of them were large, all were very influential, are critical for you at least to get on your map, especially for our black listeners, especially for the younger listeners, uh, and we hope there are some, who need to understand this geography and topography of black liberation. Now, the second reference is to Dr. Robin Kelly. Robin, yeah, Dr. Robin Kelly. He is the Gary B. Nash Professor of American History. He's the author of Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communist During the Great Depression, one of the greatest books, and Race Rebels, Culture, Politics, and the Black Working Class, produced by the Free Press. As you'll see in the story, in the backstory, Robin was a student at UCLA. He met Akinyele Emoja when he was his senior, that's who Akinyele was. Akinyele schooled him on a lot of things about black politics, black revolution, and then the irony of ironies, Robin becomes a professor at Emory University in Atlanta, and Akinyele Emoja shows up as a graduate student. Now, in traditional arrogance of the university, the young professor would talk to the veteran of the black movement as if the professor knew more than the student and the humiliating relationship would continue. Fortunately, that's not who Robin Kelly is and that's not who Akinyele Mojo was. In fact, Robin helped Akinyele, which you'll hear in the talk, take an article and make it into a book. So that's a wonderful relationship with Akinyele and Robin. Robin and I go back 25 years because when he wrote the book Race Rebels, Culture, Politics, and the Black Working Class, Victor Wallace read the book and said, Eric, you got to get to know this guy, Robin Kelly. And we've been friends and comrades for 25 years. And now Channing is coming into this tradition, reading a lot of the basic texts. The, the, the last person who's being referred to here, you'll hear, is, is someone called Queen Mother Moore. Now, there's much more. Each of them is a book, is a movie, is a whole story in themselves. But Queen Mother Moore, born Audley Moore, was an African-American civil rights leader and black nationalist who was friends with such civil rights leaders as Marcus Garvey, who was not just a civil rights leader, by the way, but the leader of the United Negro Improvement Association and the Back to Africa movement, Nelson Mandela and Rosa Parks. 
She was a founder of the Republic of New Africa. She was also a founder of the modern reparations movement. Now, what you're about to listen to in this conversation that took place at King and Crenshaw, right in South Central Los Angeles, about a month ago, was a conversation that first was introduced by Channing Martinez, who was not on the clip, Robin Kelly, who's not on this particular clip, because we wanted to get right to Akinyele Moja. He's discussing the armed self-defense traditions of black people when so much of U.S. society wants you to believe that either black people were unarmed and nonviolent, or if they were armed, of course, they're gang members and must be shot. So in either way, if you're unarmed or armed and black, the system is going to go after you either way. With that, we're going to listen to the, the clip, starting with Dr. Akinyele Omoja. We Will Shoot Back is a really beautiful, important book. And maybe we could start, because you do have some biography in here, about how did you get the wheels turning? When, when was the black consciousness beginning, your political consciousness? And then we could move to other things. Uh, first, I uh, want to say in the name of our mothers, fathers, all our ancestors, I'd like to greet everyone here. And uh, as Robin mentioned, I'm a member of the Malcolm X grassroots movement. We always begin with free the land. Free the land. Free the land. By any means necessary. We always begin with that. I want to uh, really thank Robin. Um, he mentions when I met him when he was in high school, and the same thing he said about me can apply to him when he was my professor at Emory University. Um, he gave me a lot of freedom. Uh, he treated me as a comrade, and so we exchanged a lot of ideas. And I, in that process, I learned a whole lot. Gave me the space to learn a whole lot. But how did I come to this? Uh, actually, I mentioned it in uh, in the book. There were a couple of experiences I had really when I was living here in Los Angeles. Um, you know, I, as as Robin mentioned, I joined, um, got involved in a movement, believe in high school. I, when I graduated from high school, and I joined uh, first the Muhammad Ahmed Defense Committee. And we had always talked about self-determination in the South and black people having a nation in the South, black people being independent. And so I got a chance to actually meet people from the South, and that's what really made the impact. Um, one of the people I met, I uh, was a part in the mid-'70s when I was a student at Cal State LA. I was a part of a group called the National Black Student Association. And we had a meeting in Atlanta and uh, if y'all heard of Queen Mother Moore, if not, she's Q on the posters. They're produced by this organization. And uh, Queen Mother Moore, for those you don't know, she's known as the modern day mother of the reparations movement. And she was a former Garveyite. Robin talks about her experience organizing in the Communist Party, uh, organizing tenants in Harlem. And then uh, around the 1950s, she becomes disenchanted with the Communist Party. And I remember my friend Akita brought her to Cal State Northridge back in the day to speak out there. 
And I know she came to Long Beach State when Robin <laughs> was at Long Beach State. So she used to come to LA and speak all the time. But uh, uh, she left and started promoting reparations with other black women who were primarily in the South. And they would not only work around reparations, but they would work around what they call the legal lynching of black men. Um, it it, with that time, black men being uh, charged with rape of white women, and rather than lynch them like they did back in the 30s and 40s, they would put them on death row. And not, not, I'm not talking about they signed with Suge Knight, <laughs> you know, if I said they was on death row. So uh, she, she, got, she was involved in that, and she would uh, speak about reparations. So I learned about that, but I went far afield. She was one of the advisors to the group, and she would always, in her speeches, talk about when Garvey came to New Orleans, he was supposed to be prevented from speaking by the police. And, and Jasmine probably talks about, is gonna talk about this in her book, but uh, how it was only because, Garvey was only allowed to speak because black people came, including black women with guns, and forced the police to back up and Garvey was able to speak. So I, I heard that from New Orleans, I never heard that story. Growing up in Los Angeles during the time period of time I taught, I grew up, I'm 64 now, but during that time we thought, you know, and I lived through the Watts uprising, we thought we were the biggest, baddest things on the West Coast, right? Uh, you know, urban cities, but we didn't know what our people were doing in the South. Then another woman I would meet, uh, Virginia Collins, also known as Dara Bubakari. Uh, I would ride with her after leaving the meeting. I went to in Atlanta for the National Black Students Association, and she began to tell me stories about them burying weapons uh, near Birmingham in case they needed to use them in a, a race war. And she, her son, Walter Collins, who was also involved in the movement, told me how they used to protect, or excuse me, not they, but uh, the elders used to protect people involved in nonviolent demonstrations against the Ku Klux Klan. And then the final person I met from the South that really submitted it was a brother by the name of Alfred Skip Robinson. He headed an organization called the United League of Mississippi. And <laughs> we brought him out here to speak and he, he was wearing the suit, like the traditional image of a civil rights leader at that time. And when he pulled his shirt coat back, <laughs> It'd be a 357 Magnus <laughs> down his pants, and it was like, oh, <laughs> you know. Uh, of course, this is this is before 9/11, so you could travel easily with guns then. And but he he brought he would always bring his gun out here, and when he come to speak, and he would talk about them fighting against the Ku Klux Klan. And then I think it's in 79 August. I went down there to visit, and they had a primary, and he was. Um, made uh, chairman of the Democratic Party. So it'd be the first time in Marshall County, Mississippi, which was 75% black, that black people would count the votes. And <laughs> what they actually did that morning is they arrested Skip right before the poll polls opened and kept him in jail all day and then let him out, thinking that you know the leader wasn't gonna be around, black people would be discombobulated and it didn't happen, didn't work. But when they let, let him out, they, uh, he, his uh, primary security person said he had to leave and go handle childcare at home. 
And so Skip said, okay, well, give me the gun. And it's apparently the same 357 Magnum, but they're right on the main. If you've ever been to a southern town, uh, you know, the courthouse is a major center of the town. And so Skip asked him to give it to him right there on the plaza. And the young brother said, no, let's go upstairs and do it. He said, no, I want them to know I got a gun. And so just seeing those type of things kind of really changed my perception. And then fortunately, when I met Robin, um, Robin was supportive enough, because uh, I had just was going to do this as a paper, and then Robin and some of the other professors said, no, nah, this, this, you need to do this as a dissertation. And uh, <laughs> Robin probably is, uh, I, without him I would have never have finished it because I was going to try to do the entire South. And Robin said, I can yell it, that's going to be too damn big. <laughs> and he's right. Because you know, we say we're going to narrow it down to two states. And then I, when I went to Mississippi, I said, man, this is enough evidence in Mississippi to just write on Mississippi. But that's, that's the start of it. Uh, and it was really interacting with folks. I really feel, even though I, I wrote the book, I feel like it's the spirit of, and voices. Of, that's what I tried to capture is what people share with me. Let me ask you this. The, uh, one of the things that we're concerned about is the rewriting of history in some very bad ways. Mm -hmm. And let me make a premise and then you see what you think. That in the black liberation struggle, I was with the Congress of Racial Equality. Mm -hmm. And Dave Dennis came up and Bob Moses mm -hmm. came up. He was with SNCC, Dave was with CORE. And that's when I got introduced to the Deacons of Defense from Plaquemont Parish. And Cor was saying, which was militantly nonviolent, uh, that we are only able to be nonviolent because of the deacons for defense. Mm -hmm. So w my question sort of is, if you look at everything from Garvey to the Communist Party of the 30s, to the nonviolent to the more armed, my view is I see much more continuum than difference. Of course there's difference, that's not the point. But at the Strategy Center, and we're both Garveyites and communists and part of the civil rights movement and part of the black liberation movement because first we want people to understand those continuities before they understand their differences. How, how do you, as somebody who of course you knew at each point what you think, how much do you think that continuity theory is helpful or how much do you think it distorts or confuses? Well, there are definitely continuities. I just think at certain times when we got have new developments, we just need to note that too. But certainly, uh, um, I always felt, again, uh, when we were working with Queen Mother Moore, she actually, I ended up, she was an elder in the organization I was working in when I was in the African People's Party. And so I felt like I had a link going all the way back to Garvey and the Communist Party, she would actually tell us stories about them. And internally, she might critique them. She might not critique if she was speaking to a large group of people, but she might tell us some stuff. So I felt like we had a continuity there. But um, man, for those y'all interested in this type of stuff, uh, a friend of mine, Sundiata Chajua, he wrote this he and his, one of his former students, who's now a dean at a university, I forgot what university, 
Clarence Lane, they wrote this piece called Civil Rights Movement as Vulture. And uh, my students, when we read it, they don't like the title. And you know, soon be out if you know him, he go hard. <laughs> he, he probably would be a gangster rapper if he was in that generation. He go hard. But uh, um, their argument is that people say that there's a long civil rights movement and they say what they oftentimes miss is they go from, say like goes from the 30s all the way to the 80s. They say what they don't miss is that uh, even though there are some people who were in the 30s who were in the civil rights movement and there was influence there, that sometimes we missed that there was political repression so it actually stopped the movement that was moving then and it had to be reborn with different players and things of that. So I think uh, just there is continuity. We just need to also acknowledge the breaks because if we don't look at the breaks, we won't look at what can stop us in this period. Y'all feel me? Uh, the, the repression and things that happens and then even the necessity to get different forces involved in the, in the movement that were in, in previous cycles. Wow, this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. This is KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. This show is always going to be available at voicesfromthefrontlines.com by the Friday after the Tuesday at the latest. Uh, I'm going to try to do a couple of minutes to explain my view of this very important conversation. I was just on the phone with Akinyeli today, and we're going to have him back on to continue this conversation. So let me tell you the, the theory, what this, what we're talking about, because we're both saying, it's a, I'm very happy he does keep saying continuity, and then I also want to focus more on his concept of breaks, because we, we truly do agree with both of them. We don't necessarily know how we're going to put the pieces together yet, but let me explain what this theory is about and why it's relevant today. The first thing is that if we believe that black people are an oppressed people inside the United States, which I do and which everybody who's been referred to in this group, we all agree with this. Um, if it's a national liberation struggle, then every single political tendency that disagrees, because that's the point, they disagree, must agree in some form of a united front against U.S. imperialism. If there is not an effective united front against U.S. imperialism, the oppressed nation, in this case black people, cannot win their liberation. Even if they're fully unified, they may not because of other external conditions like the absence of a Soviet Union now, the absence of China as an aggressive anti-U.S. force. But if there's not a unity, I think we all agree there is no hope. Now, what the reason I focus on that is if you look at the book, a very important book that I think we all agree on, is um, Kamozi Wooder's book, Nation Within a Nation, Amiri Baraka and the Black Radical, Black Power Tradition of the 60s. In that story, he tells brutal stories of after... Baraka trying to build a black united front at the 1972 black political convention. All the forces within that political convention, or many of them, turned against each other. And some went into the Democratic Party. 
And when Baraka went back to Newark to think he was going to build a black community uh, economic development program, the splits within even the black elected officials, the black pastors, prevented it from happening. And Kamozi makes the conclusion to his book, if we believe that we are a black nation, then some people are guilty of treason. That cannot be more heavy. What he was saying is, without saying who it is, that forces that break the Black United Front are in some way working with the U.S. imperialists. So that's the question of unity. Now the question of difference, or as Kamozi, uh, I'm sorry, as Akinyoli said, the break. There is a break between nonviolence and violence. It's not the same. It's not simply a continuity. The point I was trying to make is that in Mississippi and in Louisiana, the deacons for defense, who are mainly in Louisiana, by the way, worked with the nonviolent civil rights workers to protect them against the Klan. That's an example where the nonviolent and the armed were working consciously together. There were people who worked inside the Democratic Party and people who built the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. There were other people who built the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. There's other people who built the Republic of New Africa that wanted to get five states in the South that would be black people's states. Now, I'm a Jew. I've been working in the black movement since I'm 18 years old and in the organized community since I'm 21. But all my teachers were black, so uh, all the people that brought me into the movement and much of what I'm saying, I don't have to uh, justify, I read and think about this 24-7. The concept of a black united front was very prevalent in the positive way during the 60s. An example being the March on Washington, in which you had the NAACP and the Urban League, who were the most conservative. You had Dr. King, who was quite left, but perceived to be the center, then you had SNCC and CORE on the other side, but they marched together and made demands on the federal government, which led to the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. If those forces could stay together in a unified black united front, there's tremendous hope. So, but here's the problem of struggle. Roy Wilkins from the NAACP would suppress SNCC. He would tell... President Kennedy and later President Johnson, we don't want to be with those black militants. And when SNCC said, hell no, we won't go to Vietnam, Roy Wilkins said black people would love to go to Vietnam, really, and that we are patriotic, and that's not true. That's not a continuity. That's a split. When Bayard Rustin, who was very close to the Democratic Party, came into core, the organization I was in, and tried to get rid of James Farmer, who was the president, to make himself president, that was not a continuity. That was a split or a break. So what Akinyele is saying is without the breaks, without the struggle of new ideas, and the new ideas must be in struggle with the old ideas. So in the soul of black, the folks. Soul of black folks, he's getting involved in a struggle with Booker T. Washington. That's a break as is Booker T. Washington saying, I'm having a break with you. All we're trying to say to just begin to understand this 
is that Akinyele and myself and Robin and other people who have been through the movement 25 and 30 and 40 and 50 years and still here, we're still trying to navigate this very difficult concept. Without some breaks, there's no history. Without struggle, as Frederick Douglass said or Lenin said, without the struggle of opposites, there's nothing that can move forward. Without the unity, there's no possibility of defeating the enemy. We don't need you to understand none of us have the same interpretation of what the theory means, but it's important that you understand those two elements of the theory. And what's great about, if I may say about what Akinyeli said, is yes, we need the continuity, but without the breaks, there's no movement forward in history. And without the breaks, we can't help a new movement today that has to define itself very sharply against the present ideology because the present ideology is not working. There's one million black people in prison. You just saw when they see us uh, heartbreaking and it's still going on with a million black people in prison. So something we are all doing is not working. So we all need to make bigger breaks, even with our own theory. But speaking for myself, I will be the last person standing to try to keep us all in the room. That's my commitment. I will, even if you, if I feel insulted or hurt or whatever, even when some people do some pretty things that I don't think are right, I have to take a step back in my own organization and say that, all right, maybe you're right. So now what? How do we work with them? Because we have no alternative. And if you really believe U.S. imperialism is the enemy, then we really have no alternative to work together. So I'd like to hear Channing, some of Channing's thoughts, and then we're going to take a break, Ricky. Maybe we could do the I Wish I Knew What It Means to Be Free Again. That was great with Nina Simone. And then we're going to get into the Voices from the Front Lines action organizers. Uh, well, I guess the first thing I, I'm impressed by, I'm always impressed by when we have these talks and talk about the civil rights movement, the black liberation movement, is that people, I mean, the movement was willing to have those struggles. That's right. And I don't feel like the movement is willing to have those struggles today. And it, in some ways, even though those struggles were very hard struggles to have, I mean, you know, it's it's a hard conversation. Uh, when Kamozi was here, you and Kamozi were talking about um, the 1972 um National Black Political National Convention. Black Political Convention. I think I remember looking up a video, and they, you know, those were some intense conversations. I mean, it's no like I disagree. People were yelling at each other in that conference, um, and you know, they were trying to have a real political conversation. Um, and in some ways, for me, that's more comforting because at least you hear the other side. Um, and I feel like today I run into a lot of not just disagreement, but disagreement, but you don't understand what's behind it. Um, and, you know, that puts me into, it puts all of us at it like, okay, what do we do with that? Um, and so in some ways, it is what you're saying that, you know, you're, di you're driving a wedge between, you know, the movement, and we're not even addressing it in some sense. Well, one reason before we tell it, go to break again is that there's two reasons I would say for that. One is the positive, which is not a positive, is people have been told, not we're who are not there, that you don't want to have a lot of disagreements because you're going to split up. So there's a culture of 
you know, which is false. Well, during the 60s, you people didn't get along. You all screwed up. So I'm not going to get into these arguments. But the second thing, which is more sad, is that most of us, including you and me, work for nonprofits. And there's a culture of profound dishonesty in that whole field. That's everyone is trying to deal with. I would say the punchline is the ability to sit down often one-on-one with somebody who's a political adversary in some situation, not an enemy, and say, what's really going on? What is the basis of this fight? Is it about money? Is it about ego? Is it a disagreement that you're close to the Democratic Party and you're afraid that we're going to screw up your relationship? Then let's figure out how we can work that out. Is it because you don't like me, Eric Mann? Let's figure that out. But we are finding people that are getting together to have those. And I tend to think that those struggles don't do best in front of a microphone. Okay. You know, yeah, I know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do best when you're all alone and say, could we get to the bottom? Because you're absolutely right, Channing, and you're playing an important role now in realizing that that's part of the role you have to play. Yep. Yeah. You know. The second thing um, is, you know, I be honest that night I was doing a lot of logistics. So it's good to come back to this clip and hear it and then be able to then go back and write down a lot of these names and a lot of the events and a lot of the things that, you know, both of you guys are talking about that, you know, to be frank, I did not know about and you don't learn about unless if you're at KPFK or unless you're in the strategy center. And so, you know, I thought, uh, growing up that I knew a lot of different political, black political uh, freedom thought movement leaders, right? And, you know, I don't know at all who Mo- Queen Mother Moore is. I know from, you know, hearing it from Kamosi, from hearing it from you, from hearing it from Manuel, from hearing it from um, Akinyeli. But now I like, you know, that's a burden on me. Like, I need to go find out who Queen Mother Moore is. She's a very important figure, a black woman figure in the in the black freedom thought tradition. Um, and so that was really great to hear all of that as well. And one more thing. Oh, no, let's go. Thank you. You get the last word. Go ahead, Nina, and we'll come back. We 
the black united front in the voice of nina simone you're on kpfk and voices from the front lines 90.7 fm in los angeles 98.7 fm in santa barbara and streaming live on the web at kpfk.org and later in the middle of the night when you have nothing to do but think of us you can go on voicesfromthefrontlines.com and download some amazing shows with amazing guests uh, two more quick things on that on that thing, and then we're going to go to the action organizers. One is Channing that he might want to do a show on this. Well, we could read. There are several long articles about Queen Mother Moore right now. I, I will check out biographies. I was just on YouTube for a minute before we got here, and there's a five-minute clip from Queen Mother Moore about why she left the Communist Party and moved into a directly more na- black nationalist point of view. I would also point out, for those of you that don't want to deal with the complexity, there were other black nationalists who stayed inside the Communist Party. And it's also to remember that she was in the Communist parties before you say what was wrong with it. Nonetheless, I'd love to hear her thoughts. So why don't we do a show on that? Maybe a month from now, do some research and find some authors and let's do a good show. That would be great. Okay, so you thought of it and you'll lead it. (laughs) Okay. So those are the two things I wanted to say. Um, all right, now we want to talk about the Voices from the Frontlines Action Organizing Group. And we are going to go to the phones, Ricky, if somebody is willing to call in on this, 818-985-5735. We're going to talk out loud, okay? Channing and I put about, we don't even want to tell, you know, certainly 10 hours together, sometimes 16 together, to put the show together because... We were just editing the clips, and I was on the uh, texting with Akinyeli, and he was saying, gee, I forgot I said that, because he was generating such important work at the time, but he was busy like I was. You were busy with the logistics. I was trying to pay more attention to him to make sure that I could keep leading him where he wanted to go. And then we all want to go back and say, you know, it was even better than we remembered, which right. is... So, oh, I know another observation. What a beautiful voice he has. What a great radio voice he has. So, uh, really. That's, <laughs> that's great. Right? That's really, I was thinking about that. So, listeners, if you would, we're trying to figure out how more people will listen to this show in different formats. So, for those of you from Star who listen at three on Tuesday, which is the core audience we're trying to build, if you would get your friends to register on VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. Get 10 people to register. That means at least they would know about the show, right? And then they would get this uh, email bulletin. And we're trying to put out, we're talking out loud, a Friday follow-up where the actual show can also be on a link that we can send around the country. Now, there's a lot of things we're trying to figure out. It will be on a podcast, which Channing will talk about. It'll be on KPFK Archives. It'll be on Voices from the Frontlines archives. But by you 
registering and becoming an action organizer with voices, then we can find you. Because, see, this isn't mainly about podcasts. It's not about a radio station. It's not. It's not about programming. It's about building a movement. If you're not involved, then we have failed. I'll be honest. I mean, I'm here putting a lot of time into this to find people that want to do things. So the first thing is at least we find you and we can say, thank you, Ricky Herrera. Thank you, Marilyn Flower. Thank you, Jess Graffel. Thank you, Mark Menardine. Thank you, Stephen Jim. Thank you, Tracy Green. Thank you, Max Binder. Thank you, Anthony Rainey. Thank you, Robert M. Taylor, who was with the Bus Riders Union for 25 years. And thank you, Pashio Sarkin. At least I know there's 10 human beings with a name right. that said, yes, I want to be on your list. So could you do this now while we're talking? Go on VoicesFromTheFrontLines.com. So when Channing and I go back tonight, we see another 10 or 20 names. That's very important. Then the second thing is we can have action alerts. If, uh, if there's something happening in the city, let's say, for instance, we're having a show on Tuesday at 3, and they're talking about something they're doing, then something can go out onto the list, and you're part of the list. The other thing is that we're doing deep intellectual work at the Strategy Center and on this show. A lot of this show is about history. It really is. It's the History Channel. It really is in some ways. And the Black Revolutionary, Chicano Revolutionary, Third World Revolutionary History Channel because I have this slogan that says, there's no such thing as history. There's only the battle over historical interpretation. So Robin, Channing, Akinyele, and I, the Strategy Center, Malcolm X Grassroots, Robin's Black Studies and History, were all comrades in this political interpretation. Robin just did this amazing book on Walter Rodney and the Russian Revolution. He spent three years, which I'll talk about at another time, so a big part of what voice is about is history. Do you care about history and do you want to make history? Now, Jenny, why don't you talk more about the podcasts and other things and other ways that we, people can help us. If you want to help, 818-985-5735. How can we get more people to listen to voices from the front lines? And thank you uh, if you want to call in and talk to us. But Jenny, why don't you tell us some of the things you're doing and some of the things we're trying to figure out. Well, we've we've expanded the show a lot. <laughs> so, on top of you know putting out a weekly um, newsletter, we also put it out on our website. We also put it out on Facebook and Twitter. And for specific shows, whenever we have the capacity, we also put out a meme on Instagram. Um, now that said, you know, you might think this is a radio station. The only thing you could do is listen. That is not true. The other thing you can do is get other people to listen. But more importantly, you know, we we come out of the revolutionary tradition of organizing. And a lot of times when we do listening or watching, we do it as a group and we're doing it as a tool for organizing. And so, you know, we called it the Voices from the Frontlines Action Organizer on purpose, which went out to our newsletter. I'm sure a few of you guys saw that. And, you know, we're looking for folks to help us to do a lot of organizing, to both expand the show significantly, right, and to basically have a lot more um, uh, engagement with us online and via email and et cetera, et cetera. So 
You can listen to Voices from the Frontlines and share it from our website. You can also listen to it on the KPFK archive. And then it is on every popular application that makes it so much easier for you to access on any device, including SoundCloud, including um, uh, Apple Podcasts. They just changed your name. Um and including Stitcher and Google Play. And the other thing is we like getting emails. We like getting uh, uh, messages via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, especially messages of a lot of content. Um, and so if you have a good point of view and an interesting point of view to contribute, if it's interesting, we will read it on the next on the show That's the right. next we week. We will, and we'll make a point of it. And we'll make a very good point of it. Um, and, that, and, and also... With the action steps, you know, we are two folks and, you know, we right. we have a lot of capacity between our two folks. Um, but between <laughs> me and you, we can use help if there's things going on in the city that we don't know about. <laughs> right. Um, so please do send us a message. Please do text us. Um, yeah, that's what I have off the top of my head. Yeah, and you can call us up right now and tell us that you want to help us. I mean, we have now people even calling and say they want to do research and things. But to start with, we'd like an active listenership. A couple of the more thoughts. I had an author who said, you know, when I'm on Voices, more people buy my books than any other show. I've had groups say, when I'm on Voices, like when we had, think about Candy Mossett and the Indigenous Environmental Network and the battle at Stanley Rock. We had Candy Mossett on this phone four times in four weeks in the middle of being surrounded by guns. Why would she do that so dependably? Not telling me I want to do a tape delay, but I'll be there because, one, we raised $7,000 for Stanley Rock right on the show. Second... I said to people, in terms of the Voices listeners, 818-985-5735, this is telling me how you want to help the show. I said, I only want the people to call in who actually did something for Standing Rock or want to do something for Standing Rock. And in terms of how wonderful our listeners are, that's all we got. I still remember this, this pretty well white public school teacher said, I took my class there. Another person said, we raised clothes for Standing Rock. We raised money for Standing Rock. So that's what Voices from the Front Lines is. It's your national movement building show for people that want to build a movement. So we are, the last thing is that I'm going to be trying to transcribe the show and put it on Medium, which is, would you explain how that works? Well, Medium is a blogging site. It's uh, sort of like the new Huffington Post in some sense that you create your own audience, um, and it's very much in this tradition, like you know, like KPFK and like folks that who you know who don't want to hear the corporate news. That's you know, it's you know, the corporate news is the arm of the state. <laughs> so whatever the state thinks is whatever they think. So Medium is a great site that allows individual authors to then publish stories from their own point of view. And have their own audience separate from, you know, the whole United States imperialist state media in some sense. Yeah, as one example, I used to write for the L.A. Times for five years and they cut me out. Rudy Acuna wrote for the, they cut him out. Maurice Zeitlin wrote, they cut him out. So all the radical writers are no longer on 
the Los Angeles Times because they don't want you there. Huffington Post started out really good and then lost interest in bloggers. So that's about medium. 818-985-5735 if you want to call specifically about ways. So here's what you can do. Go again on VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com and uh, register, and then you can send an email to Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. Send an email to... Channing at the strategycenter.org. Right. And we'd love to hear from you. All right. So we haven't heard from anybody. It's okay. It's not a fund drive. But we still, if you want to talk about how you could get a group of people to listen to voices, how you could get 10 of your friends to at least sign up. Uh, so I'm going to move to just a couple of last subjects, commentaries, uh, which is for a future show. Uh, I'm very, it is about the U.S war with the world, I'm very frightened by both parties, very frightened, but we'll start with Trump. The United States has a tendency to believe that it's under attack. It comes from its roots as a white settler state where it came and killed all the people. And there's something about the genocidal mind, like the Germans believed they were attacked by the Jews. They really did. And the white people believe they were attacked by the Indians, by the natives, which is why you have those shows, Cowboys and Indians. Right. You know, I mean, because after you kill a family, they go back and kill you. And then you say, see, they provoked me. So right now, the United States, so here's things I want to talk about in future shows. The situation with Iran is very serious. Iran is one of the few countries trying to be independent of the United States. It's trying, now, if you're independent of the United States, you have to ally with somebody, and they ally with Russia, and to some degree they ally with China. So the United States, Trump is not at war with Russia, but the Democrats have to be at war with Russia because they have to claim that the Russians is why Hillary Clinton lost the election. Well, I suggest Hillary and the Democrats please look in the mirror. The Russians did not create the atrocity of your campaign. You create your own. I also urge you... Uh, to go on KPFK, uh, to go on Saturday Night Live and see Kate McKinnon's back in 2015, she did an amazing spoof on Hillary Clinton announcing her candidacy, and it showed a profoundly psychologically disturbed picture of Hillary. That she said, "I wanted to be president in my mother's womb, and now this is my time, and none of you will stand in my way." And it showed her completely unable to find a personality, trying on sitting on a couch, trying to be the softer one, the harder one. You know, it's like Trump is Trump. I hate to say it. He's, he's sincerely fascist. And it's not funny. There's nothing good about it. But he's actually the reason they caricature him so much. He's actually a believable, consistent human being. And you don't understand that I think Elizabeth Warren and Bernie, at least, whoever they are, they're consistent human beings who represent a lifetime of being themselves. There's no other candidate out there, unfortunately, who represents anything but a construction like Kamala Harris, who was a prosecutor and now is trying to act like she's a civil rights leader. It's not going to work. So authenticity in a period of mass alienation is very important. I'm really rooting for right now for Elizabeth Warren because I think there's something in her vision right now that at least has a chance to, to break through. And I think she would 
I think she's one of the few people that could really eat Trump alive. I think she's not afraid of him, and she would. I think he would overreact, and not like Hillary, who, by the way, wanted Trump to overreact, and then she was winking at the audience. See? See what he just said? It was racist. See what he said? It's sexist. And people were saying, Hillary, but you didn't do anything to answer it. Right. You did nothing, Hillary, except trying to, on another Saturday Night Live show, they say, what do you want? Hillary, what do you say to that? And, and again, Kate McKinnon said, no, let him keep talking. I think I may become president. So the assessment that Donald Trump would hang himself and that Hillary Clinton didn't have to really take him on on racism and chauvinism, which she couldn't because she had put all the black women out of welfare and put all the black men in prison. I'm getting to that Trump is very dangerous, folks. That's not what I'm getting to. I'm getting to that the Democrats are also very dangerous. And if we're going to build a united front with them, we can't have them attacking Russia. You get that? That's not how you defeat a Trump, by attacking Russia. Now, he's attacking Iran. He's having economic sanctions against Mexico, economic sanctions against China. There's a good article. I, I urge you to look at Code Pink that's doing some very important work around what sanctions mean. Sanctions mean killing people. It means putting a blockade around a country, not allowing it to get its food out, like the people in Palestine, not allowing it to get its imports in. The American people, quote, who don't exist, but that's the name they say, are at war with the world, not just the ruling class. Not just the ruling class. The most people in the United States could be easily agreed to to go to war against anybody. So I think the big issue in the 2020 election is going to be non-intervention in the eternal affairs of countries all over the world. Not social security, not even civil rights, but peace against war, uh, climate against savagery, and of course racism against, anti-racism against racism, anti-sexism against sexism and misogyny. I get that. But if it stays inside the boundaries of the United States and does not address the United States as the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, I'm terrified that we will defeat Trump, which I hope, and the Democrats will start a war the next day, as Lyndon Johnson did the day after he defeated Barry Goldwater. He escalated in Vietnam. So if this is stuff you like, as me and Channing work it over, Akinyoli's going to be back on the show. We're going to have Robin on the show. We're going to have books about Queen Mother Moore. We're going to have actions that are taking place right now today at the school board. There's a motion in front of the school board to stop police random searches of students. And we're very proud of the groups that have done that work. You know, Say the name of some of the groups that have done that work. Uh, LA School Students Deserve, I believe is their name, um, and UTLA, and of course we've done a lot of that work, and those are the, you know, big three that I know. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, another big one, I'm sorry, is uh, Making Black Lives Matter in LA Schools, which is obviously Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. So they're going to be there at the school board today at 4.30 downtown, 3.33 South Beaudry, and it's not too late to get there and testify, I should have done it early in the show, but... That's what you get on Voices from the Frontlines. In return, we're hoping to get a tweet at Eric Mann Speaks, an email at Eric at Voices from the Frontlines, and Channing at thestrategycenter.org. And now, we're out of here with Nina Simone. Thank you for listening. 
We look forward to hearing from you. We will see you next Tuesday. We're going to have a promo on the show. Thank you, Akinyeli Omoja, for the wonderful work. Thank you, Robin Kelly. Thank you, Jenny Martinez. And thank you, our listeners. Uh, stay tuned for Uprising with... Sonali Kohapkar. Next, coming up next on KPFK. Thank you for tuning in, and we will talk with you tomorrow, uh, next week.